Greetings, superstars. Welcome back to Word Up with Danny Katz, your one-stop 5D superhero listening spot. I'm Danny Katz, transformation agent, empowered badassery coach, and quantum languaging consultant. And I'm so happy you're here. Here at Word Up, we are devoted to supporting you in becoming your most authentic, empowered, liberated version of yourself. We do this by sharing quantum languaging upgrades, conscious communication tools, witchy life hacks, planetary service announcements, and high-vibing, deep-diving conversations with original thinkers, visionary weirdos, and rebel badasses. Our every show aims to expand your consciousness, raise your frequency, sharpen your critical thinking skills, and make you giggle. <laughs> Be sure to hit that subscribe button and to join us on Locals at dannycats.locals.com where you can watch the video versions of all our episodes including those that are a little bit too spicy for the non-free speech friendly platforms. And it's also where paid subscribers can tune into the second half of all my interviews and enjoy a plethora of other bonuses, including live monthly Q&As, unpublished writings and videos, and behind the scenes intel. Join our quickly growing tribe of high vibe superstars at dannycats.locals.com. Okay, now that we've got all our housekeeping out of the way, let's enjoy today's episode of Word Up with Danny Katz. Today, it is my great honor and pleasure to be joined by experimental filmmaker, author, astrologer extraordinaire, Antero Ali. Before we get into the conversation, I'm reminding you to hit that subscribe button so that you can stay apprised of my every next episode. As always, the first half of my every podcast conversation is free here. You can find the second half on my Patreon and Locals pages. So that's patreon.com slash dannycats and dannycats.locals.com where for as little as $2 a month, you can get access to all of my second half conversation, oodles of bonus content, and participate in live monthly Q&As with me and our High Vibe tribe. Uh, but before you go join me on Locals and or on Patreon, stay tuned, buckle up for my conversation with Antero Ali. your body of work, which is vast and prolific and fascinating. I know it's a bit much. <laughs> Do you find it a bit much for you? Uh, sometimes. Um, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I had to give up on figuring out a um, public image, let alone a self image years ago, um, simply because my interests are really across the board and I'm an old guy now, like I'm almost 70. So I've been doing this for, you know, 50 years. And have you always been 
um, like pathologically creative this way? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, uh, redeemingly pathological. <laughs> uh, what does redeemingly pathological mean? Uh, it means I'm redeemed by art. Right, right. It seems, I mean, it, your your path seems unique in that it seems like you do what you want to do and you've been able to do that for the bulk of your career without compromising or selling out. Well, part of that is that I never um, uh, wanted a career and I never really um, went for the career thing. I just mostly went for uh, how do I realize my dreams and you know, I had to find out, well, what are my dreams? And my first dream <clears throat> was uh, never to work a nine to five job. So I had to figure out how to get by, um, you know, without a kind of regular job. And um, the reason how that came about um, was I, I really felt like in order for me to do what I wanted to do, or even more essentially to do what I'm here to do like a destiny thing i needed to own my time and so for me time as in the time of my life not the nine to five punch clock kind of time but the time of my life time in that essence way of time um has been my real currency it's more it's not money is not the actual currency in my life i know how to make money um but it's um time that I live for. Well, and that makes sense as well being an astrologer, because doesn't that give you sort of a unique multi-dimensional understanding of time beyond our simple like third dimensional fiction around it? And, and even more essentially, uh, it allows me to own my own time, meaning my service uh, that I offer as an astrologer. Uh, it's on my time. I schedule it. Um, and yeah, uh, astrology in a sense is, uh, acts as a language uh, to track uh, the timing of events. I'm not the kind of an astrologer, for example, that believes that the planets out there are influencing or controlling our fates down here. Uh, that's not, you know, my um, angle. My angle is linguistic. I look at uh, astrology as a language um, to help me articulate and communicate um, certain perceptions uh, and experiences um, that um, English by itself I'm not able to do with just by you know speaking like normal. <laughs> and that being said, do you still incorporate the transits? in looking at how they may or may not affect our experience here? Well, I look at transits um, as the timing of change, uh, but not their causes. And so I'm more interested in the timing of events and how when a particular transit is occurring um, in a person's life, you know, when it connects up with their own chart, then I look to see what's going on in their life. And so my, um, meaning uh, I look to what's going on in their life to understand the transit, not the other way around. So I look at life first. Life is more important. Life is larger than astrology to me. 
That's interesting. And do you, you know, from this, this particular approach, do you learn more about astrology this way? Are there times where you see life kind of trumping the astrological blueprint or does it kind of reinforce the validity and legitimacy of what astrology, the language of astrology is telling us? Well, I like to think that, um, you know, real life uh, trumps any system that we impose on it. Astrology being one of many systems, you know, like there's the Tarot, there's the Kabbalah, there's all these different systems and religions and philosophies that are, are imposed on the fluid dynamic of, you know, real life, which tends to be more um, unpredictable and chaotic, I think. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So there was, there's a specific angle that I'm really intrigued to get into with you. And just to back it up as far as how you and I will know one another, I know that we're friends from Facebook and I wasn't sure like how I landed on your radar. If you have any recollection, recollection as to how it was we initially connected. Um, I think it was magic. i'll take it i believe in magic um i do too i can't imagine what life on this planet would be like if if one didn't (laughs) well there's plenty of that to go around and you know sad as it as it is it um you know there's ways in which to um combat the over literalist mindset that um you know, diminishes the imagine, imaginal faculties. And I'm a big proponent um, of imagination, of the faculty of imagination, really as a function of intelligence. Um, and in fact, uh, I would say um, my creative and artistic life since about 1991 or 92, so that's like, um, what's that, 30 years? So for the past 30 years, everything that I've done pretty much artistically and also in terms of my life and my relations too, has been following a singular vision. And that vision is called the insurrection of the poetic imagination. So everything that I do is to stimulate the insurrection of the poetic imagination. Um, uh, Because I find uh, that's an extremely... um, important um, political cause. It's my, basically my politics. I'm not, I don't vote. Uh, I'm not Republican or Democratic or I'm not Libertarian or Communist or anything like that. Um, uh, my, I, I'm, um, my politics are one of poetics. Mm. And, and the reason why I think it's important is because to me, um, my experience is that the way materialistic society has gone uh, there's been a, a, a great um, a kind of epidemic or maybe pandemic of um, imagination death uh, resulting in a, a kind of a soulless society. And if you can't find a way to resurrect your imagination, um, I think you simply suffer from becoming a casualty of not just imagination loss, but soul loss. Um, to me, imagination death uh, precedes uh, the death of soul. 
And I, it's kind of a heavy thing to say, and but I really believe that to be true. And so it's it's been a kind of a politic, po uh, po uh, political direction of my own life is to continue resurrecting the imaginal faculties in new ways, um, mostly to sustain the life of my soul um, in a society that doesn't really um, regard or uh, reward or uh, respect, um, you know, this um, wonderful magical thing called soul. That's so interesting. Um, specifically, the idea of resurrecting, because this this viewpoint necessarily rests on the fact that the imagination is being squelched to begin with, and that it takes active conscious work to bring it back online? I think for some of us it does. Um, of course, children, um, you know, some children more than others already have their imaginations intact. Uh, it's already uh, embodied in their, uh, in the seriousness of their play with other kids and so forth. Um, and, you know, there's some adults that have managed to uh, stay in touch with that inner child, you know, where they, where that inner child has not become so buried uh, and withered within them uh, that they still are children within themselves. And from that child place, they can still create, they can still improvise, find joy and wonder in existence or uh, join wonder in their own creations. Yeah, I, I do think it is the type of thing these days that takes conscious work. And I also, you know, in my mind, when we, we talk about, you know, the imbalance between the masculine and the feminine, these kind of, you know, ass backwards idea of ideas of patriarchal control, the new age idea of the return of the divine feminine. To me, this is really the crux of it is the um, the overemphasis on left brain functions, rationalism, and then the de-emphasizing, you know, moving over to like the marginalization and the mocking of intuition, emotion, poetics. So when I, you know, see what's happening in terms of, you know, the cultural discourse about putting women in positions in power, I don't really think that that's the answer. I think it's as exactly as you're talking about resurrecting the imagination, resurrecting reverence for emotion, poetics, intuition, magic, the unseen. Yeah, I think so too. And you see, it all kind of began um, a few hundred years ago uh, with uh, Descartes and his, um, you know, meditations and the birth of the so-called uh, age of reason when, um, you know, the intellect become deified. In, in a sense, the culture entered the church of reason and uh, at that time, uh, what was once considered as sciences like alchemy, astrology, astrology back then was linked with astronomy as well. So during the age of reason, um, many of the so-called, what's now called the pseudosciences were dismissed um, and even uh, labeled uh, in these kinds of um, uh, persecutional, persecutive uh labels like witchcraft and people were burned for practicing astrology during the age of reason and you know that kind of thing uh so it's been 
ingrained in the collective psyche for a few hundred years, this deification of the intellect over other functions of intelligence. And in my work, with there's a particular system I'm fond with is fond of. It's called the Eight Circuit Brain uh, Model, uh, that was made popular by Timothy Leary, and then um, his friend Robert Anton Wilson, and then also myself and my two two books on the subject matter. So we look at um, intellect as a very important function of intelligence, but only one function of eight. And the whole uh, kind of point of looking at um, eight functions of intelligence is seeing how they all interact. They all relate with each other. It's not like a linear system where, you know, you go through one, two, three, four, five, all the way to eight, and then you're done. It's more of a, a kind of um, diagnostic uh, grid. It, it's, it's a way of, in a sense, um, being able to identify and track um, where you have, where you are showing intelligence and also where you are showing ignorance. And those individuals who are interested in um, intelligence or even in increasing their intelligence will take to the system and be able to begin the humbling task of being exposed to um, the sources of their ignorance. Um, and in doing so, if you can confess ignorance, you're already, um, you know, gaining intelligence, you know, right away, anytime where you can say, I don't know, I'm clueless, I don't have a fucking clue. So at that point, your mind opens up. Uh, the mind closes when you become too damn sure of anything. And that's basically a recipe for a closed mind. It's just, you know, too much certitude. Mm, I like that. How has working with the eight circuit brain changed you or expanded your capacities? Well, actually in a number of ways, um, I've been teaching this um, system online to groups of, of about 30 uh, each time we um, meet. It's, it's online and it's just once a year and it's not the same 30 people, but if I, I cap it off at around 30 because I don't want to work with more than 30 people. Um, but what it's helped me is also with learning how to interact with a greater variety of individuals who don't who don't have English as their first language. And so to find ways of reaching people, reaching people who are in different cultures, different backgrounds, different language systems. Uh, and that's been really informative for me because um, in, the, in the United States, it's a very insular um, kind of sheltered place um, to live, uh, you know, if you, unless you're traveling a lot, unless you really break out of the country and, you know, bump around the world, then you can, you know, see how insular the United States has really become. So this helps me kind of break that insular trance uh, to interact with people from all around the world and uh, discuss uh, issues of intelligence and ignorance and, you know, find out, you know, what it is that we're learning and, you know, that sort of thing. That that sounds incredibly valuable. Um, I'm, I'm intrigued for sure. I, in scoping, you know, I, I, I told you before we started recording that I've, I've been in, in a bit of a study mode around your extremely prolific body of work. 
Um, I'm quite a fan of the word weird. And <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I find intriguing is that you said you don't believe, you don't buy into the notion of a collective we. Well, it's not like I don't buy into it. I just find that it's overused. Um, what's what's lost in the constant use of the pronoun we is especially if you're referring to personal experience and instead you immediately go to the universal we, like we as a species should do this and then everything will be better if only we would do this. And it overlooks uh, the personal responsibility of what I, as a person, um, can do to become the change that I want to see in the world, so to speak. And so I'm a big proponent on um, of individual integrity and um, and testing one's own integrity uh, by uh, how honestly you can register the experience that you're having and how honestly you can communicate and share what you're going through. And I think that if you can commit fully to your own subjective experience, to your things that you go through, it's going to reach at some point a more universal level. And you won't have to do it by sacrificing your individual integrity by just, you know, using the we word all the time and forgetting about, you know, where the experience actually comes from. It comes from the individual. It doesn't come from the collective. Experience itself starts in the individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, I think it's kind of, um, it's a little bit, for me, it's a little bit fuzzy because, you know, I'm, I'm obviously a fierce individualist and I see a lot of the issues that the collective we are facing in the United States as this sort of exaggerated degree of individualism where, everyone wants to be living their best lives and like having fun and not necessarily paying attention to how our actions are affecting the very epic stakes <laughs> that we're, you know, that we're playing with right now. Um, so do you feel like these individual choices do affect the larger collective we, or is that not something that's part of your paradigm? Well, I really liked what you were talking about. Um, about the highly individualistic uh, behavior of the United States culture and so forth, because it reminds me how young of a nation this is. I mean, it was established, what, in 1776? So as, as far as nations go, like as an entity, um, the United States is still in its adolescence. It's, it's not grown up yet. I, mean, it's, I think it's starting to grow up. And, you know, a country typically grows up, the entity of a country typically matures through, um, you know, suffering um, of a real nature, not just self-created suffering, which is kind of like a phony suffering, but usually through war and usually through outside shocks, invasions, violations, where the entity of a nation has to stand up for itself, has to uh, defend itself, has to find out what it's made of and, um, you know, the integrity of that. And so, you know, I totally understand, you know, that a nation as young as the United States uh, is pretty much going to be preoccupied with um, <laughs> either fucking or fighting. I, I don't know what, what other 
way to put it, but it's, it's more at an adolescent stage. Um, and I don't think that can be rushed. You know, I don't think that any any amount of, of um, um, good intentions or, um, you know, certain new age um, guidelines or whatever is going to force maturity on the American psyche. That's just, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, and like I said, I, I do think this, the national entity is undergoing a maturing at this time uh, because there's simply more threat that the United States has to respond to. And as, as we as individuals too, learn to respond more creatively, more productively to threat, to the threat of our survival, and not just th to the threat of our physical survival, but the threat of emotional survival. We get threats to our intellectual survival. We get threats to our social survival. And this is part of, you know, how I understand, you know, you know, the life process using the eight circuit brain, because it, it, it goes through these eight different definitions of survival, basically. Uh, the bottom four, physical, emotional, intellectual, and social survival, um, you know, in a sense, represent the uh, the foundation of the developing ego personality. And then once it can be um, developed, uh, then it can enter into the upper circuits as a way of uh, discovering, you know, how to um, uh, um, more openly give of oneself. But you can't really give of oneself effectively if you don't have a self to start with. And, and so this is, I think, a big part of developing ego and individualism is to develop a strong enough sense of the self so you have a self to offer. I think that's, I think ultimately that's the uh, function of ego is eventually to give it up. Mm, yes, I, I totally agree. As you were, as you were speaking, I was thinking of Claire Graves' spiral dynamics. And are you familiar with that system? Um, no, I, I don't know anything about that label or that system. I mean, the basic gist is he's um, codifying the evolution of consciousness and he color codes each stage so as not to create a hierarchy around it. And his theory is that consciousness develops through these stages in this exact order. No one skips any stages, but that, you know, there's this leap from me consciousness to we consciousness, but that we can't get to we consciousness until we've you know, gone through the work of developing a really solid, authentic me consciousness. So it sounds to me a bit like you're speaking to that kind of self-responsibility that's necessary for everyone to take before we can then as a collective move into a we consciousness. Well, that's that's been my personal experience. Um, I've also, because I've been, I've been exposed to working with hundreds, maybe thousands of individuals in real time, in person, throughout my life, because I've been um, deeply involved in teamwork processes of theater and filmmaking and ritual uh, for the last 50 or more years. And what I've been able to discover um, in working with so many people, uh, many of them highly creative individuals, is really how much um, uh, damage and um, trauma uh, people bring to the table and are really looking, searching for ways to um, cope with it, um, transform it, 
um, somehow get beyond it so they don't have to keep repeating the same trauma over and over again. And oftentimes the trauma is a childhood trauma where there's this kind of repetitive thing. They just keep, you know, it's the same button that gets pushed over and over again from the age of seven on, you know, whenever the trauma happened. And so I, I have a lot of compassion and um, understanding um, for imperfections, shortcomings, flaws, traumas, and damage, um, you know, for with people. You know, I, I'm not uh, into anything having to do with perfection at all. Yeah, I'm not even sure what perfection means. <laughs> I think it's a corpse. <laughs> the perfect corpse. Exactly. Yeah, it's interesting because in my, you know, in the coaching and consulting work that I do, and I work very specifically with language, is I'm attuned to how the you and me creates separation, right? And it's specifically the prescriptive you when I'm working with clients, how that can sometimes trigger defenses, trigger an amygdala response. Um, so in my work, I've, I found it more helpful to move into the inclusive we, especially when supporting people in integrating their traumas and their hurts and their suffering such that it kind of, you know, expanding the process so that we can understand that like, we all have suffering. We all have flaws. We all have shadows. Yes, it is our individual responsibility to heal them. And I think a lot of people can sometimes feel like there's something wrong with me or I'm bad or I'm broken. And so I tend to utilize the we just to make the process of transmuting our shadows a little bit, um, you know, more human and less like I, I've been singled out as this terrible person who these horrible things happen to. Yeah, it sounds like you have found um, an effective approach there. I almost look at it from the other way around. Um, you know, I have such a, what's the word, uh, innate uh, sense of the unity of all people. Um, I already, I know the we thing by heart, so I don't really need to emphasize it. I already know that um, we're all human beings. And so my approach is more to hone in on how, on the distinctions of each individual, so that I approach each individual clearly on a case-by-case -case basis, meaning really tuning into their strengths, their weaknesses, their particular talents, the places where they're putting up walls and defenses. And this, is, this has taken a long, long time uh, to um, get to a place uh, where I'm perceiving more than I'm projecting. Mm. Um, you know, because there's a huge difference, of course, between perception and per projection um and so you know any kind of work with others has always uh, been preceded by self-work for me there's no way that i can work with anyone on anything that i haven't first worked on uh in myself yeah i respect that um big time thank thank you for holding that for for everyone you work with and for yourself Oh yeah, no, and and the thing is, is too, is if I if I encounter someone that's undergoing something that I haven't gone through and I don't know anything about, I just tell them I, I don't know what to say or what to do here. Uh, you're on your own, and or I would recommend them to somebody else. 
Interesting. So you have a very experiential methodology. Oh, yeah, very uh, much. In fact, um, I just finished writing a book. Uh, it's just was published a few months ago. It's called Experiential Astrology. And so my angle, uh, even in the astrological language, um, is to find a way to um, relate to the language in a more embodied way. Uh, so how to approach um, the experience of uh, the symbols of the planets on the chart. I refer to them not as planets, but as forces. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like the moon, the force of emotion or the force of habit. Everybody knows what the force of habit is or the force of will. Everyone knows that it's a very common uh, force. But once uh, someone can um, begin to find their own personal experience of the forces at play, something opens up for them. It's called experience. Okay, now they know what Mars is, My, the force of will. Oh, that's when I'm getting really pushy. This is Mars, pushy. I know that force. That's my experience. So, so I go through all the uh, planetary symbols and break it down to very specific forces that people experience in their bodies, but also um, outside of their bodies because there's cultural forces. There's impersonal cultural forces that are often represented by Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. Um, and so it, it becomes really fascinating to me that this distinction between uh, personal forces, which are forces I think that one can experience and even control to some degree. And then there are impersonal forces that really are not controllable. They're not really, sometimes you can't even comprehend them because they're so large and vast because they, uh, connect up with these collective movements and trends and you you find yourself snagged in on it and all of a sudden you're in this big hurricane or, or tsunami of um, herd mentality that's moving through the land and you're looking for a way to ground yourself and differentiate and get back to who you are so you know you don't get um, lost in the sauce you know of, of the herd. Mm -hmm. I can, I can relate. I have a, a lot of transpersonal energies in my chart that sometimes have very large effects. And it's very helpful for me to remind myself like, oh, this isn't me. This is yeah. not personal. <laughs> exactly. And I think that's a really significant distinction, you know, to know what's not actually personal, especially for some individuals who, um, you know, maybe have a, a highly uh, emphasized moon in their chart or a lot of uh, the archetype of cancer, that these individuals can tend to uh, take uh, things way too personally. Mm, I definitely experience that of people with, <laughs> with cancer in their chart. <laughs> <laughs>
patreon.com slash dannycats. Before you navigate on over, be sure, be sure to hit that like button. Be sure to subscribe. As you are inspired to stay abreast of all of my offerings, including my upcoming Language of Healing webinar, uh, my coaching packages and offerings, new books, new products, please sign up for my mailing list at dannycats.com. And thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon. Check out my website, dannycats.com. As well, track all of my latest content on my Locals page, dannycats.locals.com. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you soon, tribe.